Well, there are certain misconceptions, certain untruths that never seem to go away. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. One is that um, the Great Wall of China is visible from space. Have you heard that one? It isn't, okay? It's a wall. That's the clue. Uh, walls are not visible from space, and making it longer doesn't suddenly make it visible from like 800 miles away. A uh, second common misconception is that if you shave, that will make your hair grow back thicker. Okay, if that was the case, we wouldn't have baldness, would we? You'd just have to keep shaving your head and the hair would keep growing back and you'd be... We'd all be struggling with just... I guess we'd all just have far too much hair all the time, wouldn't we, if that really was the case? Well, here's the third misconception. It's going to be our theme for the, the morning. That singleness is terrible. Singleness is terrible. And by singleness, I don't just mean not being married, but I mean actually as a Christian being single which also includes living in purity, uh, living chastely, to use an old-fashioned word, being sexually abstinent and celibate. That whole package, to many of us, if we're honest, feels pretty awful. And there are four particular misconceptions of singleness that I want to walk us through this morning. And the first is this, that singleness is bad for you. It's just bad for you. Um, in our culture today, I think most people would be kind of comfortable with the idea of not being married. There's a, there's a way of seeing that as being an opportunity of being free and unattached and you can kind of play the field or whatever it might be. But to be celibate and single is bad for you. It's laughable. So take a couple of uh, fairly recent movies. Um, one is The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Just the title of that suggests that the concept of being a virgin at the age of 40 is comedic. It's laughable that someone would be in that situation. Or take another movie, 40 Days and 40 Nights. This is the, the kind of strap line to it. It says, one man is about to do the unthinkable. I wonder what that is. What is the unthinkable? Well, no sex whatsoever for 40 days and 40 nights. Goodness me. That is unthinkable. So for someone like me, and I'm sure for many of us in this room who are single long-term, may have been single for many years, if 40 days and 40 nights is unthinkable, I haven't calculated how many 40 days and 40 nights my life has consisted of, but I don't know what I must be other than a complete freak of nature. And it's not just laughable, it's, it's actually harmful. Behind that kind of comedy is a, a serious belief that actually one of the, the deepest senses of our personhood is our sexuality. And not to express it is actually bad for you. Uh, many people would, would say today that if you're, you're leading a, a sort of celibate life, you're leading a, a very shriveled, diminished version of the life you should be living. You're not being your real self if you're not expressing and fulfilling your sexuality. Well, the perspective of the Bible is very different to that. Let me just tell you, for example, the life of Jesus. Jesus was single. Uh, the most fully human and complete person who ever lived on this planet was never married was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. 
So that tells us immediately that none of those things can be essential for human fullness. And if we say it is, we're actually diminishing the humanity of Jesus. Or consider the Apostle Paul, and if you have access to a Bible, do um, turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at a few different passages this morning, but we're going to spend a bit of time in, in this chapter to start with. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just, uh, just listen in. We tend to define singleness as the absence of being married. So we call singleness being unmarried. We don't call being married unsingle. But we see singleness as the absence of marriage and often as the absence of all the good things that go with marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul comes to discuss singleness, the main thing he describes it as being the absence of is certain worldly troubles. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28, listen to what Paul has to say. He says, if you marry, you've not sinned. Okay, Paul is not down on marriage. It's not a bad thing. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that, he says. Isn't that interesting? God says, if you marry you will have worldly troubles. So friends, if you are married and experiencing worldly troubles, that is not a sign that everything has gone catastrophically wrong. Paul says that is par for the course. In a fallen world, being married and having children will bring worldly troubles. It will bring, we hope, worldly joys as well. But Paul wants us to be realistic. I know friends who have lost spouses at a very young age. I know people who've been abandoned and cheated on. I have friends who have lost children in the most tragic of circumstances. I know friends whose children are, are walking away from Christ. Those are worldly troubles that as a single person, I am spared. I hope I can enter into them as a, as a friend going alongside others who are dealing with them, but those are troubles I do not have to look in the eye myself. Uh, sometimes when I'm visiting friends with families back home, I get kind of broody and think, oh man, this is so cool, you know, the kids are precocious and everything's nice and warm and, and fun. But frankly, there are other times when I'll walk into to someone's house and we'll think immediately, okay, this is what Paul means by the gift of singleness. <laughs> and you just walk in the house and you know World War III has begun. And, you know, there are hot tears pouring down both kids and adult faces. And the question then is, how long do I have to stay before it's rude when I leave? <laughs> and I've worked out, it's about 18 minutes. Okay, that, I think that's just about long enough that you can then make your excuses and, and do something else you've got to head off and do. But it's not just what we are spared. Paul says, actually, singleness frees us up for certain things as well. 
So have a look at verse 32 of uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That's good news, actually, isn't it? Just on its own. Uh, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul is not down on marriage. Paul says some of the most beautiful and exalted things about marriage in the whole Bible. But he does say that actually singleness enables us to devote ourselves to Christ in a way that is undivided. It's not that you're, you're kind of spiritually compromised if you're married, but you are being pulled in lots of directions. Whereas for those of us who are single, often we can serve Christ in a, in a slightly less complex way. We can be more undivided. We can be more single-minded. There are certain things we can do if we are single that would not be the case or should not be the case, wouldn't be appropriate if we were married. Certain ways we can give ourselves to the work of the gospel, to the service of God's people and the world beyond. So far from singleness being a bad thing, Paul says actually it's a good thing. It spares us certain worldly troubles and actually it frees us up to serve Christ in in ways that wouldn't be right if we were married. Now, both marriage and singleness have their own particular ups and downs, but the danger is that we often compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. And it's very easy for those of us who are single to think, well, the grass must be really green on the other side. But now Paul says, no, singleness is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And if you think marriage is going to solve all the problems you have in life through your singleness, actually you're dangerously naive. So that's the first misunderstanding, that singleness is bad for you. The second is this, that singleness requires a special calling. And it's related to that first point. Um, Summer movies often these days are superhero movies. And and in fact, I think those tend to be year-round now, superhero movies. Um, And they seem to be making them at a rate that suggests it's all we ever want to watch when we go to see a movie. Um, You get your superhero character, you get the sequels of that particular movie, you get the reboot of that particular character, and then the sequels to the reboot. You get the crossover movies where all the other characters come in, then you have the sequel to the crossover movies, and then the reboot of the sequel of the crossover movies of all the other characters. Um, We seem to be kind of fascinated with certain people who have a particular unique endowment that helps them to kind of do something otherwise impossible. And many of us have in our minds this idea that singleness is so bad it must require some special spiritual superpower just to be able to survive it. So when we hear Paul talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 of the gift of singleness, that's what we tend to think of. We think, well, yes, Lots of people are single, 
Singleness can be hard, but there seems to be this unusual category of people who are able to particularly flourish and thrive as single people, and that is the gift of singleness. It's not the case for everyone, but some people have that gift. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. Again, it implies singleness must be intrinsically bad. If you've got to have some special superpower to survive it, it can't be a good thing. But also, try applying the same thinking to marriage. Yes, well, I know I'm married, and some people do seem to be particularly good at marriage. I'm struggling with marriage. Maybe I don't have the gift of being married. And therefore, it's better for me to abandon my marriage. It's actually a very destructive way of thinking because it, it means we can end up in a situation where we're single and yet God has not given us the capacity to cope with being single. And it's very easy, if that's our thinking, to then justify various illicit forms of behavior on that basis. I've met people who've said, well, you know, I didn't have the gift of singleness, so I'm, I'm in this relationship that I know is not biblical, but I didn't have the gift of singleness, so I had to have the relationship. In other words, it's God's fault. But no, when Paul talks about the gift of singleness, or for that matter, the gift of marriage, he's not talking about some people being able to be single really, really well, or some people being able to be married really, really well. No, Paul is talking about the status of singleness and marriage itself. Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. And it's liberating for us to know this because it stops us hankering after one or the other in an unhealthy way. If both are gifts, then either, either way, we get the goodness of God. We get his goodness through the state of being single, or we get his goodness through the state of being married. And if that's the case, it doesn't ultimately matter if I get married or not. Those of us who are single, we mustn't spend our whole time as singles thinking, well, when I get married, that's when life is actually going to start. And I'm just in a holding pattern until then. And similarly, those of you who are going through a difficult season in marriage, again, it's very easy to think, well, singleness would be the answer to everything. No, marriage and singleness are both gifts. And therefore, singleness doesn't require some special superpower, some special calling. Third misunderstanding is this. Singleness means no intimacy. Maybe for many of us, that's the biggest fear about being single, is a total lack of intimacy. Well, in our culture, we have so collapsed sex and intimacy into each other that we can't conceive of intimacy that isn't ultimately something to do with sex. So we hear previous generations speaking about deep friendship and we kind of roll our 21st century eyes and say, oh, well, they were obviously gay or something. But actually, the Bible shows us an experience confirms this as we look at the world around us. 
It is possible to have lots and lots of sex and no intimacy. The Bible also shows us it is possible to have lots and lots of intimacy that has nothing to do with sex. Uh, We see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus did not do life on his own. He did life with a a group of people. We have the the wider network. We have the the 12. Within the 12, he had a, a deeper relationship with the three. And even within the three, there was the disciple Jesus loved. Or similarly, Paul, we often mistakenly think of Paul as being a lone ranger. This kind of out there on his own, heroically pioneering. But actually, you look closely at Paul's letters and you realize Paul was not a lone ranger. Uh, At some point this week, look through Romans 16. It feels like the end credits to the letter of the Romans because there's, there's just a list of names. But as you read through that chapter, you realize Paul was deeply embedded in the lives of others. Many of the people he references, he speaks of in very intimate terms, often family terms. No, the Bible has a a far broader view of intimacy than our culture does. So let me give you one, I think, very special example, and it's what Jesus says in John 15, 15. It's a, a verse I wouldn't believe if it wasn't there for us in the Bible. Listen to this. John is speaking to his disciples and he says, sorry, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. That is not to say that there is no component of service in our relationship to Jesus. We do serve him. He is our master. But he's saying there's far more to our relationship than mere service. He says those who are only servants don't know what's going on. It's not their business. It's above their pay grade. grade. Their job is just to do as they're told and not to ask questions. So Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For, and whatever Jesus says next is going to show us what he believes to be defining a friendship. I have called you friends for I have added you on Facebook. (laughs) No. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In other words, Jesus, Jesus has led us in on what is going on. He's led us the whole way in. He spilled the beans. In the book of Proverbs, a friend is someone who knows your soul. The Hebrew for for friend is is the same as the the Hebrew for secret. Because a friend is someone you tell your, your secrets to. And Proverbs shows us you cannot be wise in God's world without friends. And can I say, that is as much a word for those of you who are married as it is for those of us who are single. I have seen marriages implode for a lack of real friendship outside the marriage. We need friendship. And biblical friendship is intimate. 
So let me put it this way. There is a depth of intimacy that I don't get to experience not being married. That one person who you kind of share whole, the whole of your life with day, day by day. But as a single person, I have a capacity for friendship I wouldn't otherwise have if I was married. I've got the, the capacity to invest in a, a wider range of deep friendships. And so although there may be a depth of intimacy I don't experience by not being married, I have a breadth of intimacy I wouldn't experience if I was married. I think that's one of the best things about being single. Getting to have a, a deep relationship with a much wider range of people than would otherwise be the case. Actually being able to drop everything at a moment's notice when a, a friend is in need. Well, here's the, the final misconception, and that is that singleness means no family. Maybe that's a fear of, of some of us today, is that if I'm single, I'm just never going to have that kind of experience of family life. Well, let me invite you to turn, if you've got a Bible, to Mark chapter 10, and we'll see what Jesus has to say about this. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. It's one of the most amazing promises Jesus makes in the Gospels, and it seems to be one that many are unfamiliar with. Uh, just before this uh, moment, we've had the rich young man. He came to Jesus so enthusiastic about being a follower of Jesus, and yet wasn't prepared to give up and leave behind the things that Jesus was calling him to leave behind. And so it's a rather sad episode. He goes away disappointed. And Peter, ever the emotionally intelligent type, decides in verse 28 that this is the moment to tell Jesus how amazing he and the other disciples are. So verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. Aren't you lucky, Jesus, to have us around? Yeah, that guy there's just, you know, he's, he's failed discipleship 101, but but we're here, and you've got your kind of 18 disciples. Jesus, you know, you're welcome. You're welcome. How lucky you are to have us on board. And uh, we're told in verse 28 that Peter began to say all this. Evidently, there was much more where this was coming from. But Jesus cuts him off in verse 29 and says, Truly I say to you, which is, shut up, Peter, for a moment. You try that at home, can't you, when someone's going on. Just say, truly I say to you, and see what happens. <laughs> but you better have something amazing to say next, because Jesus does. Uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you. And actually, that is Jesus' way of saying, listen in. What comes next is really significant. Truly I say to you is Jesus' code. For one day, people are going to put what I'm about to tell you on a poster. That's how key it is. So truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now notice, Jesus 
is assuming people will leave things to follow him. That is basic discipleship. Jesus was always honest about that. He never buried that in the small print. And notice too that Jesus assumes the most costly things to leave will be familial and relational. And in fact, there are some people for whom following Jesus will mean they cannot return to their own community. They will have to leave behind their kin. And yet Jesus' response to that kind of prospect isn't to say, yes, and it's just going to be, you know, it's just going to be horrible. But don't worry, because at the end you get heaven. No, Jesus says, even in the face of that kind of cost in discipleship, it is going to be worth it to follow him, even in this life. Jesus says, we will never leave behind more than we receive from him, even in this life. And again, he casts this in, in familial and relational language. There is no one who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And yes, a side order of persecutions, whether you ordered that or not, that just kind of gets bundled in. And when Jesus talks about houses and lands, he's not saying, listen, hey, if you follow me, you're going to have the most amazing property portfolio. No, Jesus is promising family. He's saying there will be places you can call home. There will be people that will be family to you. Psalm 68 says that God puts the lonely in families. And that is what Jesus is promising in these verses. And friends, the response of us is therefore to think, well, actually, we are the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising. And so this is an unusual promise because it depends on us for it to be fulfilled. Jesus is promising family to those who otherwise would not have family. And we are meant to be keeping that promise. Let me ask you to, to think of this. Just imagine someone came to faith in Christ and became a member of this church and the nature of their background meant that they actually had to leave behind their community and the patterns of intimacy they had developed. And they now come here. In fact, they come to this congregation. Imagine that. Jesus is saying in Mark 10 that that person should be able to say that as a result of being here, they should be able to say, oh, I now have far more family than I ever had before. I have more community than I ever had before. I have more intimacy than I ever had before. And my question for you, and it's not loaded because I don't know you, my question is, as you think about the life of this congregation, do you think someone would actually be able to say that? 
Now, this is why it matters. If in our heart of hearts, as we look around this room and we think about the kind of relationships we have as a congregation, if in our heart of hearts we're thinking, in all honesty, I, don't, I just don't think someone would say that. I'm not sure we actually are providing family. Then you're calling Jesus a liar. But on the other hand, if it is the case that someone who doesn't have their own family gets stuck in here and can say, do you know what, I have far more family here than I ever would have had if I'd stayed out there, then we are demonstrating the goodness of Jesus Christ. To a watching world that is, is actually dying of loneliness, this place would be a lighthouse. The death of Jesus that we've just had that lovely opportunity to remember and to rehearse creates family. And it's the deepest type of family we can ever experience. But it is the family that exists within God himself, the eternal son opening up access to the eternal father, sharing his sonship with us. So that actually the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of biology. And in Christ, together, we have a depth of community, a depth of relationship that transcends any other kind of families that we're part of. The more we live as though that is the case, the more not only will people not have these misconceptions about singleness, but the more this group of people will be non-ignorable to a watching world and the more Jesus himself who has knit us together will be non-ignorable to a watching world. Let me pray for us. We pray, O oh our Father, that we would live in the light of the gospel, not just in our own individual lives as we seek to follow Jesus, but together as we seek to be his people, as we seek to live out the calling you've given us to be the household, the family of God. Father, we thank you that in Christ we are brothers and sisters, that we are Mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, please help each one of us who knows Christ to think of who it is they can be a child to, who it is they can be a brother or a sister to, who it is that they can be a father or a mother of here in this fellowship. Father, we pray that there would be not a single individual in this room 
in this church who feels lonely. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.